This is the No Ocean Podcast. I'm Troy Kitch. Today, we're continuing a three-part series brought to you by the Coast Interagency Group of the U.S. Global Change Research Program. This series explores how we make decisions about developing, protecting, and conserving our coastal areas, home to about 40% of the U.S. population. In the first episode of the series, we learned about equity and justice in coastal planning. Today, we explore what the latest behavioral science research can tell us about how we make conservation and environmental decisions. We'll hear from Philip Bujold, a behavioral scientist with Rare Center for Behavior in the Environment. He's interviewed by Chris Parsons, a communications and policy specialist for the Oceans Division of the National Science Foundation. Check our show notes for bios on our guests, links to more information, and details about the genesis of this series. You'll hear Chris Parsons speak first. Let's listen in. So thank you for for joining us today. And I'm really excited about asking you these questions about behavioral science. So my first question is, ocean scientists tend to try to convince members of the public about issues by presenting them with facts. Do we have any information on how successful a strategy this is? And what could scientists better do to connect with the public? Yeah, definitely. So first of all, thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure to be here. And yeah, the the second part of the question, I think, is probably the first bit that I want to address. So what could scientists do better, Um, especially when it comes to facts and giving facts to members of the public? So when we think about traditional interventions to, to change people's behavior, Facts are going to be the first thing. So can you give people facts or information about a specific behavior or a problem? Uh, but what we tend to rely a lot on also is regulating behaviors. So trying to stop people from doing something or encouraging them to do something and also material incentives. So fines or even rewards. And those are kind of the three traditional ways that we have of pushing people towards specific behaviors that we want them to partake in. The reality of that, unfortunately, is that we don't necessarily always think in the way that these three types of interventions will actually lead to the behaviors that we want. So the reason I say this is because we can define decision-making in kind of two different ways. A lot of the time, we think of it in terms of very rational, slow, deliberate, very conscious. But behavioral scientists define this as system two which intuitively means that there is a system one in the way that we make decisions. Um, And that system one is actually the one that guides most of our decisions. So it's irrational, it's fast, it's unconscious, and it's very, very effortless, which means that most of our decisions are made by the system one, a few are made by the system two, but using uh, processes like information deficits, so giving facts to people, using rules, regulations, or using material incentives, only targets that system two bit, the one that's very rational and very conscious. So we're missing about 80% of the decisions that people make. So facts are great, um, but we need to be very careful with what situations we use them in, because they're not always as effective as we think they are. Great. Thank you. Thank you very much. So what you're saying essentially is that scientists are missing a major component of engaging with the public and interacting with the public. Yeah, exactly. So if you think of decision-making in these two types of systems, um, system one, which is most of our decisions, that is very fast, irrational, um, and very effortless, that's the one that's usually ignored. Um, And that's really the most important one when it comes to daily decisions for most people. System two is the one we target, but it's the one that's 
really for a minimal set of decisions. Ah, very interesting. Because scientists are very often trained to be sort of unemotional and illogical, but really interacting with the public, we have to sort of embrace this, uh, I guess, emotional and irrational part of us. Exactly. So I think that comes from our training as scientists a lot. We're so interested in a very specific topic that we tend to think that if we give people that information, they will agree with us and probably do the exact same thing that we do, right? Um, unfortunately, that's not the reality of behavior. Um, actually, behavioral science, which now is really, really growing, it englobes the neurosciences, economics, um, psychology. They have a lot of social sciences in there. These sciences combined have started to really pick at the different things that do affect the system one that I was talking about earlier, what really drives about 80% of our behaviors. And for that, we can simplify this into kind of three different categories. The first one is that context really matters. Um, so, so the way that choices are presented, that really, really matters to people. And you can imagine something where it's presented as a gain versus a loss can have a huge impact. Um, so if I present, for example, um, solar energy to people, and I say that they're going to we're focusing on the cost of installation, then solar energy feels like a loss. But if you focus on the gains that come later on by saving on a utility bill, that feels like a gain. So context really matters. It's the same information, essentially. You're just choosing to present specific things in a different frame. The second thing that's really important is that we're social animals. People have evolved to be in communities. We've evolved to be in groups. And that really, really matters when it comes to influencing our decisions. So a lot of the time, we're going to refer to what we call social norms. So social norms are huge in guiding people's behavior uh, because we tend to want to conform to what other people are doing or what we think other people want us to do. And um, so second point, very, very important when it comes to decision making. And then the last one is that Although we like to think that we're very rational, the system to thinking, we're also very emotional. And actually, emotions drive a lot more of our decisions than we like to think. And so the way that things are presented, the emotions that they engender, they really tend to sway people's decisions. And there's a great example here that came out a few years ago. Maybe a few of the listeners will remember. There's a video of a turtle with a straw in its nose. We all know the statistics. Thousands of turtles die every year because of plastic pollution, but that one turtle with the straw is very, very powerful. And that's the kind of emotions that engender and change behavior. So three things to remember on top of basically material incentives, rules, and information, we really need to start thinking about context. We need to start thinking about social norms, and we need to think about the emotions that our interventions engender in people. So you've mentioned a number of factors. Which are the most important when the public makes decisions? Yeah, so I wish I could give you a very straightforward answer for that. Um, like many things in science, however, the answer is it depends. And it's going to depend on really what is driving the specific behavior that you're trying to change. So I was talking, again, referring to the system one, system two thinking earlier. System two is for a very narrow set of behaviors. System one, about 80% of our decisions, here we're going to be able to influence them with this choice context, what we call choice architecture with the social norms I was talking about earlier, or with the emotions. But still, that's 80% of behaviors, and one of those three things might be better at specific behaviors than others, right? And so for different situations, you're going to be wanting to focus on different things, but there are some broad categories that kind of fit across the board, and especially for behaviors that require cooperation among people or where the results really matter when a lot of people cooperate. There's a quick toolkit that came out of MIT, actually, where they say 
there's kind of this these three um, items on a checklist that you really want to hit every time. And they, they really fit in those boxes I was talking about earlier. So the first thing that you want to do is to make sure that everyone in the community knows about the benefit of something. So in this case, let's take um, the adoption of solar panels, for example. So here, there's a great benefit. We know that it's sustainable. Doing that alleviates climate change. Great. You tell that to everyone. The second thing you want to do is to make the behavior unambiguous and categorical. And the reason you want to do this is because you don't want people to have the option to get away with it, not doing it. But they, you don't want them to have plausible deniability. So that's the second thing you want to do. And you can tell people that basically people that have solar panels on their roof are the ones that are adopting the behavior. Everyone who isn't are not doing it. So easy. The behavior is observable. It's simple. Everyone understands. Then the last thing that you want to do is create the sense that it's the norm. And so usually you're going to do that by making the behavior very, very observable, but also you're going to make not engaging in the behavior very, very observable. So once people know what is correct or not correct, and you've hit those other two things, usually you're well on your way for generating these cooperative behaviors that we call. For other types of behaviors that are a bit more complex, usually what you want to try and address is the uncertainty that people feel around adoption. So I work a lot on um, climate smart agriculture, and that's something that's very ambiguous for people. And by ambiguous, I mean people really don't know what that means, and farmers don't necessarily know exactly what are the practices that they're going to have to adopt. It's not even that they expect that it might work or might not work. They just don't have any idea of what to expect. And in those cases, humans are very uncertainty averse, ambiguity averse, we call. And so when that happens, it's much easier for us to go with something that we expect, even if we expect to lose, than something that is ambiguous, something we don't know what to expect from. So social norms are very powerful for cooperative behaviors, but really addressing that uncertainty in the way you frame a question and the way you generate emotions is going to be very important for these non-cooperative behaviors. So two buckets, but again, you always want to, to dig into to figure out, is that what's driving yours? Ah, very, very interesting. Very interesting. So you mentioned renewable energy, and this is something that is often a controversial issue in coastal areas, but it's something the public is going to have to embrace for us to meet our climate change goals for reducing emissions. So you've worked on several renewable energy projects in the past. What did you find to be successful in these projects? And were there any problems that you encountered? Can you tell us about your experiences? Yeah, so there are many. Um, I think the biggest ones is to not rely on assumptions. And that's probably going to be the biggest thing that a lot of us working in conservation do. We assume that something is going to work without actually having validated it or without having built an evidence-based hypothesis. And so I want to put that at the top here because that's really going to be one of the main mistakes. And that has driven a few bad experiences that we've had with different intervention programs where you build an entire intervention and you realize that ultimately that's not what's guiding behavior. So for example, um, some of the work that I'm doing on agriculture, the assumption that is reigning in the field is this information deficit model that we referred to earlier. So people don't know about a behavior. They don't know how to do a behavior. Well, so in some of the countries I work, actually, that's very easy to address. The issue is that when people look around, they see that 90% of their neighbors are not adopting this behavior. And so they only have to look around to convince themselves that, well, there's probably a good reason for that, right? And that's also the case for other behaviors like adopting electric vehicles. A lot of the time you see no one else is doing it. So maybe it means that they're not ready yet. And you can think of that also when it comes to energy generation 
for oceans. So I worked recently in a project, actually in Australia, um, where they're trying to regenerate some of the ocean front. And people just don't know what that means. And they also don't know who's doing it, who's not doing it. So the, the ask isn't clear. People don't know what the benefits are. And they don't know that it's a norm. Actually, it's not because no one else is doing it because no one wants to try. And so people keep giving information because they assume that that's what's going to change the behavior, but it's not actually working. So that that's one of the big issues that we tend to see is that we rely on assumptions without having dug into what's causing a behavior. And talking about coastal projects like that, we're obviously going out on NOAA's podcast, and many of the listeners are probably involved in coastal and marine issues, where it's important for them to understand what local stakeholders think, what sort of behavioral science is important to do to help them better understand and better connect with local stakeholders so that their projects can be successful? Yeah, so I'm going to reframe that question a little bit uh, because it's not necessarily about the evidence that you need, but rather about the process that you need to put in place or the framework that you need to put in place to be successful at changing behavior. So a great analogy that sometimes isn't super popular, but I'm going to say it anyways, you wouldn't necessarily trust anyone to build a building or a house, right? We all live in them, but you trust an architect or an engineer. Well, it's the same with behavior. We all engage in it, but we need to start thinking about who are the experts on behavior that can really inform an intervention or a program that we want to be designing. And that's usually going to be behavioral scientists, psychologists, neuroscientists, economists, or social scientists that are very, very good at getting to the crux of a problem and understanding what creates or reduces value for different communities. So once you have that established and you've gotten the expertise that you need, another thing that's very important is to have a design framework that you go through that really forces you to gather evidence, to understand the communities you're working with, but mainly to focus on a behavior. And that's one of the biggest problems that teams are just not set up to do. We're going to be designed to focus on information, to focus on a problem, not to focus on a specific behavior. And once you have that in place, you find out that things are a lot easier. So at Rare, we have this behavioral design competition every year where we essentially train startups to engage in different behavior and to start designing interventions about specific behaviors. And before that, they kind of just run with what they're used to. But once we've gone through the process, they focus on a specific behavior. And usually the intervention is actually very different to what they had imagined because it's behavioral-based and not information-based or not systems-based or not action-based, really. It's based on the exact behavior that you need. So I think that's probably one of the main things that could actually help a lot of your listeners here um, in thinking about behavior change. So when scientists are putting together a proposal for a project and they're thinking about the sort of the social science, behavioral science, the outreach side of things, do they tend to think like a scientist in terms of numbers of things to do, numbers of workshops, numbers of interviews, or do they talk about changing the behavior of stakeholders? Yeah, definitely. Um, And I think one of the drivers of this is because oftentimes we have to report those numbers to either a funder, a grant, a government body. And I think, unfortunately, we can start at the bottom, but we also need to start thinking behaviorally at every level of these interventions and at every level of this decision-making system, really. Too often, even in our work, we're going to have grant proposals where we have to report 
numbers of people reached, not necessarily the number of people whose behavior was converted. And that, I think, is still a big problem. It's starting to change, uh, thankfully, now that the behavioral sciences are becoming a bit more mainstream. And I think with that, we'll get a lot more impact in the work that we do. But another problem that we also have is that we're not necessarily evaluating and reporting on a lot of the behavior change interventions that we do have. So there's a lot of work being done all around the world right now, but no one's talking about it. There's no controls. You can't know for sure if your impact is actually there. So there's a lot of great ideas out there, but they just need to be a bit more refined here. And I think the system needs to change a little bit to put behavior at the center, as opposed to all these other metrics that are very, very useful, but might not be a direct indicator of if people are doing what you need them to do. So do you have any specific suggestions for listeners, how they can put behavior up front and center? Yeah, definitely. So that usually starts directly at the beginning of the design process. Um, So we have our own behavioral centered design process here. There's many that exist that are based in behavioral sciences. Um, But the way we work at it is that the first step is really to frame everything you're going to do specifically for a single behavior. And then from that, we design essentially a theory of change, if you want, but around that specific behavior. And if you're going to have multiple behaviors, you need to have a theory of change for every single behavior. And the way that that works is that you want to start at the behavior, you want to understand the drivers. So the levers I was talking about earlier, material incentives change this, would the context of the choice change this, would social norms change this behavior? Once you understand that, then you can design activities that will address what you need And that should result in your behavior. If you're starting from the get-go at the bottom where you have an intervention that you know how to do and let's figure out what the behavior is that you can change, you're going at it the wrong way. So I think that's one big suggestion that I have for everyone. Start at the behavior and that has to be your focus point and then design everything from that point onwards. Thank you very much. That was really interesting, very inspiring and gives us a lot to think about. So as we wrap up this episode, do you have any take-home messages for our listeners? Yeah, so in in perfect science fashion, I have two actually here. The first one um, is really going to be about never assume and never assume that what you've done in the past is the correct way of doing it. So we have a lot of expertise around the behavioral sciences, use them. The second one I really want to focus is focus on behavior. That should be at the forefront of every intervention design. So if we're not putting behavior first, we're probably not going to be able to change the behavior in the way we want to. That was Philip Bujold, a behavioral scientist with Rare Center for Behavior in the Environment. He was interviewed by Chris Parsons, a communications and policy specialist for the Oceans Division of the National Science Foundation. Head to our show notes for details on our guests and additional links. This interview was edited and produced by Ashley Scarlett of Absolutely Smashing Events and Consulting. It was developed in collaboration with the U.S. Global Change Research Program's Coast Interagency Group, and it was funded by Adaptation Sciences, or ADSCI for short, a group out of NOAA's Climate Program Office. Ideas expressed in this podcast did not necessarily reflect the position of the U.S. Global Change Research Program or its member agencies. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next month with our third episode. We'll hear a panel discussion on lessons derived from this series on coastal planning and how these lessons are relevant to the federal government.